0: Please uh, take your seats uh, and as you do so we'll um, we'll read our verse uh, together with the uh, words missing. Uh, I think maybe, uh, actually this is the last time we're in Galatians for another month so I was about to say uh, maybe next time I'll we'll blank it out completely but if we've got like a month where you, where you could do the homework but I'll uh, I'll do it one more time like this after. Uh, But let's let's read uh, God's word together. Hopefully by now, uh, this is sinking into your minds. But more than that, let's pray that these truths sink into our hearts. So let's uh, say God's word together. Uh, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would turn, uh, please, with me to uh, Galatians chapter 2. And this evening we're going to be looking at verses 17 uh, to 21 of Galatians 2. But what I'm going to do is read from verse 15 down to verse 21 so that we can look at the verses we saw last week and just put these ones into its context. So I'm going to read Galatians 2 from verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Christ died for nothing. This is God's word. And I've called this uh, sermon The Shape of the Justified Life. The Shape of the Justified Life. Now all of you have probably uh, heard uh, the phrase uh, don't fit a square peg in a round hole. And it means that someone is in a situation or, or doing something uh, that just doesn't suit them. Uh, maybe uh, some of you have had uh, an, an assignment or a job that's been given to you and you just feel like it's trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't fit my, kinda, my life. Well, the Christian life has a shape to it that if we don't understand will make us live in a way that we will not have the joy and peace that we're supposed to have. We can be living in a way that doesn't really suit the label Christian. Rather than being a square peg in a round hole, what we're kind of doing is, is almost being a wrong-shaped peg in a cross-shaped hole. And I say this because the shape of the Christian life is cruciform. It is a, a cross shape. And if you're living in a different shape, a kind of shape we're going to look at a little bit uh, this evening, you will feel like the Christian life that I, f- I'm, I feel like I'm supposed to be living doesn't, doesn't quite fit with what, um, I, what, with what the Bible says. I, I'm like a, a square peg in a round hole or a wrong-shaped peg in a, in a cross-shaped hole. Now, Paul has been responding to Peter being all out of shape himself in Antioch. Peter has been withdrawing from Gentiles and he's only eating with Jews. And in doing so, he's forcing the Gentiles to adopt Jewish customs. He's making some of the Gentiles think that they are justified or made right with God through the works of the law. And that's the wrong shape. If you feel like you can only be right with God through earning salvation, that is not the shape of the Christian life. But last week we saw Paul tell Peter that Peter knows better. Paul explained how we're justified, we're we're made right with God, not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot earn your way to heaven. We're made right with God by faith in what Jesus has done on our behalf in dying for our sins and in rising from the dead. And Peter knows this. Paul says, we know. Peter knows this is true, but he wasn't living in line with the gospel. He's not living a cross-shaped life. And so from verse 17, Paul goes on to describe what the cross-shaped life looks like. And this is what our life should look like too. So that's what we're going to consider this evening. What is it like to live a life of a person justified by faith in Jesus Christ? Well, there's three points we're going to look at. And the first is actually what it doesn't look like in verses 17 to 18. So Paul says that the the cross-shaped life is not an exhausting life of rules. It is not an exhausting life of rules. Now, I spent a long time looking over this verse. In fact, um, I struggle so much with verse 17. I must have spent hours just with a blank piece of paper. Uh, but after praying over it, uh, I think I get this verse. And the point that Paul is making in all of these, uh, in verses 17 and 18 especially, is that we are not to live a life all based on following lots of rules. So in order to understand this verse, we need to grasp two points from it. First of all, this verse is responding to an accusation that would come from false teachers. The accusation is this. Justification by faith means that Christ is promoting sin. To which Paul says, absolutely not. And secondly, we need to remember that when Paul uses the word sinners here, it's the name that the Jewish people would give to Gentile people. They were classified as sinners because they didn't have the law to restrain them from sin and show them how to live for God. So let me uh, explain the problem of verse 17 in 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 the logic that these people would have thought. If the Jews were justified in Christ, that is, they were declared righteous based on what Jesus has done and not by works of the law, then the Jews are classified as sinners just like everybody else. There's no difference. They need to be saved like everybody else. But if that's true, which it is, and and they're classified as as sinners, that means that their law-keeping makes they're no better than any other Christian. And so they might as well not bother keeping the law. What's the point if it doesn't make any difference? But they were thinking, if, if we don't keep the law, and there's no restraint on sin, we don't have all of these rules, then sin is promoted because it's not restrained. And so therefore, to be justified by faith in Christ... And not by works of the law, sin isn't restrained and therefore Christ is promoting sin. That's what they were saying. The accusers were basically relying on the law to stop them from sinning. And in their argument, removing the law would just promote sin. People will run riot. How can we live if we don't have all of these rules? How how possibly will we know what, what God wants from us? And so they... Teach the Gentiles that the Gentiles also need to follow the law, because if you don't, then you're not going to stop sinning. I mean, how can we live a righteous life if there are no rules? That's what they were saying. Their religion then became all about rules. And the Jewish people felt that therefore, because they had all these rules, the law, they were better than the other Gentiles who didn't have the law. Now, many Christians live like this. Their Christian experience, their Christian life is all about following all sorts of rules. A list of what you can and can't do. But the way of Christ is not a tick list. The way of Christ is a heart transplant. We'll see that more as Galatians goes on. Not only does the law Not save us, neither is the law supposed to enslave us. Now, there are two ways you might argue that removing rules promotes sin. First of all, you might argue that if what I do doesn't add to my right standing with God, then I may as well sin because it doesn't matter. That's the the line of argument in Romans chapter 6. Paul writes there, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And then he goes on to say, by no means. Or in the words of Galatians, absolutely not. And that's partially what's being talked about here, I think, partially. But there's something more nuanced going on in Galatians because this is linked to Peter and his behavior to the Gentiles in Antioch. And how he was, in the words of verse 14, forcing the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. The problem here is this. The Jews believed that if they did not force the Gentiles to follow the customs, then sin would be promoted. Now, how does that apply to us? Because most of us do not, I, I think, knowing, I know most of you, uh, most of you do not, like me, follow the Old Testament Jewish law, a law that distinguished Jews from Gentiles. We don't think that the Old Testament law will restrain us from sin. We don't make the sacrifices and uh, we don't have the food laws and all of those things. But we do, don't we? All of us, in various ways, have rules or behaviours that we live by that might make us think that we are a cut above the other sinners in the church. We might have rules in our Christian life that we live by that we think, well, if I don't live this way then I'm not really right with God or if I do live this way then I am more holier than those other Christians in church that don't live in the same way I do. Now I'm not talking about uh, uh, moral, um, the, 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 the living morally, living in a, a way that is, is right. So I'm talking about rules and regulations that we put in place that are kind of extra-biblical, really. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, consider the way that we dress, okay? Now, you could argue, you could, that in order to take, to take church seriously... Uh, I might be helped by dressing really smart, okay? Uh, I've met Christians, and I've heard people say this, that we should really dress up for church, okay? So uh, I met one that said that we should wear a, a suit and tie. And if we don't do that, then we have an attitude towards church that doesn't take it seriously. Now, here's the thing. That might well be true for you. It might help you to to take church seriously and to worship God if you dressed a certain way. But the problem is when that rule becomes something you think everyone should do, and so you look at someone else and you think, well, look at how that person's dressed. Now, I'm not talking about immodesty. If someone comes dressed in a bikini to church, I would send them home. But I'm talking about clothes that you might think is not the right attire. It's not... It's not, you're not taking church seriously. Look at how that person's dressed. They're in, in joggers or shorts or whatever it might be. And you might think, how lax is that? Now, that's not me criticizing. You dress however you, <laughs> however you want. But you see the point. Now, you don't know how that person or why that person dresses that way. Uh, someone pointed out to me this morning, that might be the only clothes that they have, for all you know. But also, how do you know that they're not taking church seriously by the way that they dress? Uh, Another example, consider ministries in the church. Now, the Bible tells us that we are to meet together. The model is that that was done on a Sunday and the word was preached, sung, and the the Lord's Supper shared. But we might think, well, if we don't have all these extra ministries, then sin is promoted. Now, it's good to have extra ministries in the church. I think, for example, we we have children's work and Sunday school. Those are, are good things. And I think they they help us promote righteousness and they share the gospel and such things. But is there a ministry in the church outside of the worship that is prescribed in the scripture that you think is essential and if it was stopped, then we would promote sin? Because most ministries in the church do have a kind of shelf life, don't they? And sometimes when a ministry is stopped, people think, well... That's the, that's the end, like this church just is going down the plug hole. Individually, do you have traditions that you have made into rules? Even as a church, our Advent candles are fine, and they're good, and they're helpful, but if they were taken away, do you think, well, we can't really celebrate Christmas? As if Christmas celebration is in the Bible anyway, but that's another, another thing. But have you got rules and regulations in your life as individuals that you think if these aren't done, if everyone doesn't do these, then sin is promoted? Or do you think me doing these makes me a a cut above everybody else? Think about that. Because Christianity is not about following rules and regulations. And verse 18 shows us the problem of this way of thinking, with believing that you have to follow extra-biblical rules in order to be a, a proper Christian. The problem is that this way of thinking has been destroyed. Look at verse 18. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Well, what has been destroyed? Well, the Old Testament law itself has not been destroyed. Remember Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount that he came to fulfill it, not destroy it. But two things have been destroyed by putting our faith in Jesus. First of all, the works of the law being used as a basis for salvation has been destroyed. It should never have been used in that way, but some Jews did. But that way of thinking has been destroyed by what Jesus has done. But secondly, linked to Peter's behavior in Antioch, the gospel, in the words of Ephesians 2, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. In other words, the law had a, set a barrier between a Jewish person and a Gentile person. And if Peter starts rebuilding those, those laws, he's rebuilding the wall that was broken down that brought those two groups together. And if we rebuild those walls that our faith in Jesus has destroyed, then we become lawbreakers. We become people that are sinning. And we sin because either we're relying on ourselves for salvation and not trusting in Christ, or we begin to treat other believers as being less than we are. The law or the rules of our life used in this way actually promote sin, not Christ. He doesn't. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here. Christian disciplines are important. For example, I, I encourage you to read your Bibles and to pray every day as a habit in your life. I encourage you to come to church and in, the, in the morning and the evening to prayer meeting. These are for our good and for our joy as God's people. But we should desire those things not because when we get home we can tick a box to say we've been. God must be happy with me today. I went to church twice. That's not the Christian life. We should want to be with God's people, because He's changed our hearts, not so we can tick a box and say we've been. I, I remember speaking to. Uh, I used to work with a Jehovah Witness, and he came to work one day, complaining about how much extra time he went door knocking, and then everyone, then some of the others, because he's seen their timesheets. <laughs> they had to fill in a timesheet to say how long they've been out. That's not the Christian life. We're not. We're not. We're. we're, we're we're not living by the, the law in that way. So we need to be careful against thinking that any, anything, any rule adds to our standing with God. And we must be very careful that we don't think that our way of Christian living makes us better than others. That was the problem in Antioch. That's what Paul is speaking against here. The law doesn't save us. Works of righteousness do not make us more righteous. Righteous. And a Christian life full of rules and regulations about all sorts of things robs us of joy, and it's not the cross-shaped life that we're called to live. But some of us here might be thinking, well, if I don't have all these rules, how then am I supposed to live for God? What do I do? Well, the shape of the justified life is cruciform, and we see that in verses 19 to 20 especially. And what we see, first of all, is that the way to life is actually the way of death. We see that the, crucify, the, 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 the cross-shaped life is an exclusive life of death. There's an exclusivity, so notice we're, we're dedicated to Christ alone. And there is a death, a death to self. So in verse 19, if the, if the law itself has not been destroyed, what's its purpose? Well, Paul explains more in, later in Galatians, but verse 19 gives us a bit more information. Look at the verse. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. In other words, the law itself led Paul to die to it. What's he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, the law pointed to another uh, time, a fuller relationship with God. It pointed to Jesus. So after he died and he rose again, God's people were not bound by the law like they used to be. Their relationship with God is shown in a fuller and deeper way. As we read in Psalm 40, the law written on our hearts. We, the, the law shows us our need of Christ, and when Christ has died, he gives us And he rose again, and we put our trust in him. He gives us new hearts on which the law is written so we can live and have a relationship with God in a fuller and deeper way. And that kind of relationship is described in verse 20. We live exclusively for God now by being, in the words of verse 20, crucified with Christ. Crucified with Christ. Now, obviously, that's not speaking in a literal sense, we're not literally, physically crucified with Christ. But what Paul is saying is that my old life is gone. My old life is dead. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So the law, he's, he's dead to that because now there's a new power within him, Christ. Christ lives within him. And Christ enables him to live for God. So the power to live for God does not come from following lots of rules. That way of life is dead. But it comes from Christ living in us. And verse 19 and the first part of verse 20 are a, are a mindset we must have as Christians. Notice how much the word I is used here. In the Greek, I is, is, is translated ego. And notice how much it's used in verse 20. A Christian is one whose ego has been crucified, and now they are not filled with ego but with Christ. And our lives must reflect this. That's the cross-shaped life. It's one where our ego has, has been crucified and we live a new life in Christ. Now, many Christians live their lives, sadly, as if it's all about them. In two ways, this happens. First of all, it can be all about you in terms of your reliance for your salvation Or the reliance you have for your service being all on you. So these are people who have not understood that they've died to the law as a means of saving them. They still try to earn God's favor. And it can be very subtle. You you can have a, many, many Christians have a need to be needed. I want to be needed by people. Or a belief that if I wasn't in this church, it just wouldn't function. It would be really rubbish if I wasn't here. Now, of course, no one is going to, you're not going to verbalise that. Not, well, I hope not. That <laughs> would be, be a bit of a shocker, wouldn't it? But we can, really, we can functionally live that way. I mean, if, if I wasn't here, what would they do about this? Or you can be a, 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 a Christian who has a desire to be seen and known as a doer or a really busy person. I want everyone to see how busy I am. Many live as if the world or the church relies on them, Many live constantly seeking the favor of God and other Christians rather than living in the favor that we already have in Christ. That's not being crucified with Christ. That's your own ego living in you. But if some seem to live like salvation is all about them, others have the opposite problem because we've been crucified with Christ. So some people live as if it's all about them, in that they don't realise that being crucified with Christ does mean that there is sacrifice involved in the Christian life. Paul's words, crucified with Christ, echo Jesus' words of, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Has living for Jesus ever cost you at all? That could be reputationally, financially, rejection, or so on. Have Have you ever felt the cost of living for Jesus? Do you only serve in church in ways that are convenient to you or is there sacrifice involved? We are crucified with Christ. It is a a sacrifice, isn't it? So although there is a cost to following Jesus and the the shape of the Christian life is cruciform, it is also the way to true life. Notice that in verse 19, Paul dies to the law that he might live for God. He might live for God. Living for God means dying to self, and living to God means living for the one who made us, the one who designed us to live, the one who made us to be in relationship with him. So the crucified life, although it's the life of sacrifice, is the best life we can live, and it's the life of joy in service of our king. So what does that look like? Well, Paul goes on to explain in the second half of verse 20, it's an embodied life of faith. An embodied life of faith. Notice the end of verse 20. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in these words, we see the description of the crucified life. Our old life has been crucified. We've been raised to a new life. And in these verses, we see what that's like. We see the type of life. The way of life and the motive of life. So first of all, the type of life. I forgot to put this bit on the slides, but the type of life. Okay, it's the first part. It's a bodily life. This means that when we talk about being crucified with Christ, it's a mindset that works itself out in the way we live in our day-to-day bodies. It's similar to what Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1 when he says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Too many Christians... Talk about their belief, have theological discussions or debates about, about what they believe or what the world and church should be like, but don't live out what they talk about with actual obedience to the way of Christ. Christianity is not just a way of thinking, it is a way of living. And Paul says here the life we now live, we live in the body, it's active. It's physical. We, we don't have a faith that's just intellectual. We don't have a faith that's just mystical and airy-fairy and some, you know, somewhere out there. The Christian life is active, using our bodies, our physical day-to-day existence, for the glory of Christ. It impacts how we talk, where we go, what we consume and purchase, how we use our money, our time, our abilities. All of these are lived out by faith in Jesus Christ, which leads us to the way of life. So the type of life is bodily. The way of life, Paul says, is by faith in the Son of God. The way of life for the Christian, the cross-shaped life, is by faith in the Son of God. The Son of God is Jesus Christ, the one who lives in us. So therefore, God is in us, helping us. But what we see here is that the way of the Christian life is continual faith in Jesus. That means we continue to rely on him for our salvation, constantly reminding ourselves of what he has done for us. But that means we we trust that his way of life is the way that we should live. We obey the way of Christ following his footsteps, even when following him goes against the way of the world, because we have faith in him, in his word. We know that he knows best. Even when what he says goes against the prevailing winds of the culture, we live the way of faith in Christ. And part of, by the way, being crucified with Christ is that you will go against the prevailing winds of the culture. It means having faith in his plan when it seems out of control and when his plan is painful for me. We continue in suffering to have faith until the day comes when we will be with him in glory. When suffering comes, we say, although this is hard, although this hurts, I've been crucified with Christ. He understands my suffering. And although this is not what I would choose, I have faith in the Son of God, knowing that his plan is perfect. He knows what's best. I will continue to trust him, even in my pain. Faith in the Son of God is not a one-off event when you're converted. It is a way of life day to day in the body. The way of life is faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, look at the motive of life. The motive of life. We live for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why do we, why do, we do this? Why do we live by faith? We live bodily by faith in God because he loves us. So much he gave himself for us. Jesus Christ, he loves you so much that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He sacrificed everything for you. What can be too much for you to give for him? Is there anything? Of course not. As we sing, Jesus, what can I give? What can I bring to so faithful a friend, to so loving a king? Saviour, what can be said, what can be sung as a praise of your name for the things you have done? Oh, my words could not tell, not even in part, of the debt of love that is owed by this thankful heart. Faith in the Son of God always involves daily relying on what Jesus has done to save us. And we live it because he first loved us. It's Jesus who saves us, it's Jesus who empowers us, and it's all by God's grace. And Paul summarizes in verse 21 by explaining what happens if we can be saved, not by grace, but through the law. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Think about the alternative to faith in Christ. If we could be saved by works of the law, his death is is pointless. If we could be made right that way, there's no need for Jesus to die. He would have just said, try harder. Try harder to keep the law. And in doing that, in living that way, in living as if you can add to your salvation, Paul says, you you set aside the grace of God. He says he doesn't do it because he has faith in Christ. But when you don't, you set aside the grace of God, imagine at Christmas this year I, I bring you a gift, and it's a gift that is just for you. That's what our salvation is. Imagine you open that gift, and you, you open it up, and you say, "No, thanks." You just, you just chuck it aside. Horrible, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a horrible thing to do if I bought you that gift? And yet whenever we don't have faith in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what we do to God. Tim Keller helpfully illustrates this verse with a a story as follows. He says, Imagine that your house were being burned down, but your whole family had escaped. And I said to you, Let me show you how much I love you. And ran into the house and died. What a tragic, pointless waste of a life, you would probably think. But now imagine that your house was on fire and one of your children was still in there, and I said to you, let me show you how much I love you, ran into the flames and saved your child, but perished myself, you would think, look at how much that man loved us. If we could save ourselves, Christ's death is pointless and means nothing. If we realize we cannot save ourselves, Christ's death will mean everything to us. And we will spend the life that he has given us in joyful service of him, bringing our whole lives into line with the gospel. And so as we bring our lives in line with the gospel, those lives will be cross-shaped. Any other shape is trying to fit something into a cross-shaped hole that just won't fit. That's why, by the way, living, trying to live for Jesus in a way that isn't faith in Jesus is the most miserable way to live now perhaps some of you here this evening have been trying to squeeze your misshapen lifestyles whether that be exhausted by rules or bloated by no sacrifice at all into a cross-shaped hole and have been wondering why the christian life just doesn't seem to suit well here's the answer for you i have been crucified with christ we die to self-righteousness we die to self-indulgence we die to ego and we live for God. Let's live for Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and is risen from the dead, that we are justified by faith in Him. Deliver us, O oh God, from having faith in ourselves, in our rules and regulations. May we always, every day, have faith in Jesus Christ, that the life that we live in the body would be lived by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Well, our final song is going to be the one that uh, I just quoted a moment ago. I will offer up my life in spirit and truth. Let's stand together as we sing God's praises.
1: Offer up my life in spirit and truth Pouring out the oil of love as my worship to you In surrender I must give my every part Lord, receive the sacrifice of a broken heart What can I give? What can I bring? To so faithful a friend, to so loving a King, Savior, what can be said, what can be sung? As a praise of your name for the things you have done, oh, my words could not tell, not even in part, of the debt of love that is owed by this thankful heart. You deserve my every breath, for you've paid the great cost, giving up your life to death, even death on the cross. You took all my shame away, that defeated my sin. Open up the gates of heaven, and I beckoned me. Jesus, what can I give? What can I bring to so faithful a friend? So, so loving a King Savior, what can be said What can be sung Is the praise of your name For the things you have done All oh, my words could not tell Not even in part Of the debt of love that is owed By this thankful heart
0: I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen.